Welcome to episode 43 of the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'm your host, Fabio Molle. How are you guys all dealing with the lockdown? From a vote on our Instagram account, it looks like 50% of people can get out for some sort of physical activity for less than an hour and others can't. So I hope for those that are going out, are going out, getting some exercise and maintaining their distance from people. And for the others, I hope you're getting some fitness in at home. I actually managed to strain my hamstring doing rehab for my hamstring. So be careful. Don't overdo it out there. It's too easy to think you've loads of time and overtrain. You'll end up getting injured and we don't know how long this is going to last for. And you'll end up not being able to train at all. So be careful, guys. Don't overdo it. Okay, so this episode is a bit different to the usual one. We had a great chance to have an Instagram live with Kyle Edmund and it was so good I thought we have to convert this into a podcast episode and we're going to have some more people on Instagram live and I'll try to do the same with them. If you don't know about Kyle, he's been ranked as high as 14 in the world. He's won the Davis Cup. He's a feared forehand and overall he's a really nice guy I found out on the live show. Kyle talks about life in quarantine his forehand, what training you can do while you're stuck at home, beating Andy Murray, talks about cars, watches, mental challenges, what separates the different levels of players and much more. The sound quality isn't as good as normal because we recorded from Instagram. We didn't have any fancy mic set up, but Kyle's answers make up for it. Okay, let's go. Hope you enjoy it. Hello. How's it going, Kyle? How you doing? Great to have you on the show. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. I'm in Bahamas right now, so I'm actually hoping to get back to the UK on the weekend. Okay, so a bit of a holiday, is it? Yeah, obviously I was over this way playing the tournament in New Wells in Miami. And once in New Wells got cancelled, I went to Miami because my coach lives there. So we just thought we may as well just do a bit of training. Any case, the tournament goes ahead. But once it got cancelled, I just came over here and um, I've been chilling out, basically doing a little bit of fitness, but not much. Great. And you have a place over there? Yeah. So my residency has been here for the last couple of years now. So I've got my own place here. Obviously, well, the benefit is is a little bit closer to America, but I don't get to see family and friends as much. But I mean, the weather's unbelievable here most of the year. So that's the plus. I can imagine. And tell me, is there any courts nearby? Have you touched the racket at all? Uh, when I got over here for like the first three or four days, I was playing. Colin Beecher was with me, one of my coaches. So we were practicing. And then funnily enough, where we were practicing over at Albany in Bahamas, uh, here on NASA, sorry, Mark Knowles, he's one of the ATP guards on the board and he has a place as well. So funnily enough, while we were practicing, he came on the next court because his family were there. And then he actually told us he just got off the call with the ATP and they had extended it to what was then the June 7th date. So then once he said that, I was just like, well, let's might as well just pack it in now and <laughs> go and chill out because we've got 12 weeks to wait. So, but now it's longer, unfortunately. Yeah, like, so how are you, what's your mental space like? Are you like, I don't want to touch a racket or do you want to play a bit? How are you dealing yeah. with that? Initially, I wasn't that bothered just because I'd been playing a lot, traveling a lot as well from Australia. I went back to the UK and then UK, I obviously played New York, went to Delray, then to Acapulco, back to Miami to then go to Indian Wells. So I'd done a lot of training, a lot of traveling. And then when they got called off, I was like, yeah, let's just take it easy for a bit. All of a sudden, when you take sort of 10 to 14 days off, you get that itch again and you want to play. But you can't play at the minute because no one's allowed outside. So yeah, it's, it's, nice. uh, it's weird. Uh, the only thing you can do really is just try and do a bit of fitness on your own. So 
gets a bit boring, I'd say, after a while. Yeah, it's definitely boring. And when you get told to stay inside, it, for me initially, I was like, oh, it's, that's all right. You know, you're not being told to go anywhere. But after a while, it just gets so boring that you realize actually getting out and doing stuff is for the best. That's, it's good mentally. It's good for your headspace. And I'd say you're, you'll be fed up with a Versa climber in no time. Yeah, exactly. Luckily, um, I'm sure you've seen from social media that the RTA sent a few watt bikes out to the players. So when I got home, I've got that to enjoy. Ah, great. So, and would you not stay in the where you are now? No, no, I'm going to head back. I need to go home anyway to running out of stuff here, and I'm going to see my family as well. I haven't seen them in a while, so I'll go back. Great. Well, look, let's jump into a few questions here. I have a load of paper that were asked during the yeah. week, but let me see here. Who's your favorite tennis player growing up? Favorite tennis player. Always said I really liked Marit Safin. I don't really know why. I think maybe it's because of the way he played. He's a big guy, so an aggressive player, very sort of a power player. And maybe that sort of reflected how I tried to play my game. So I always liked him. Gonzalez as well. He was a guy who obviously had a massive forehand. Um, but naturally, I always try and the British guys, I was always supporting them. You know, Tim Gredick at Wimbledon when I was really young. And then more recently, obviously, Andy. And that started a bit strange because I went from obviously watching Andy to then getting to know him and then ultimately becoming, you know, my opponent. So that was a side of it where at first it was quite weird, but like I had to find something where that became, you know, normal, where he was my opponent. Not normal, just I had to get used to it and, and get over that thing in my head that when I'm going on court now, I'm not there to watch him, I'm there to beat him. So that, that was a bit strange for me. When was the first time you beat him? Well, I only beat him once, and that was at Eastbourne. Okay. And um, what, was there a release? It, How did that feel? Yeah, it was, I, think, I remember after the match, it was just a little bit of relief from the match in terms of I was always up during the match, won the first set. I was a double breakup in the second, and then I lost at 5-2. I, I think I was serving for it and then got broke, and then I had to serve again at 5-4. And, but yeah, it was just... I was wanting to, to get it done, got myself in a really good position. So the nerves are a bit there. Uh, you're aware of the situation. So, yeah, when I won the match, when being the change room, it was just a bit of relief. But he had beaten me twice before that, and we'd obviously played a lot together. So once I got myself in that position, I knew it was a, a good opportunity, especially against Andy. That's well done there. Does that make a big difference when you practice with somebody so much and then you play a match against them? The matches are always better because you know intrinsically what each other is trying to do and you're, so it makes you a bit quicker. Does that make a more exciting match for you? Yeah, when I playing against Andy, and I'm sure he'd say the same against me, I actually I knew a lot of the way he wants to play, like the tactical side, the different angles that he uses, how the rallies develop. Of course, his return is a, a huge part of his game and where not to serve it, where he likes to hit off the return, stuff like that. So I knew going into the match, it wasn't going to be different. But of course, once you go from practice to match, there's something on it now. You know, everything counts. So that was the difference for me. And also a lot of these guys, uh, well, more Andy when he was coming back from his his injury in Eastbourne, he'd obviously had, at that point, had an amazing career and people knew him a lot better. And uh, when he was coming back from injury, he had, he'd got a lot of support behind him, especially playing in, in Eastbourne, even though I was British as well. There was a lot of support behind him because of him coming back and his story and, and how good he is. So I just knew that that sort of opportunity was, was a big one. But if there is a player on tour that I guess I know 
the game the most or I practice against the most, it would probably be someone like uh, Andy or maybe even like Dan or Cam. You get to practice those goes more than the others. And and tell me, just speaking of your game, your big forehand, did you always have a massive forehand growing up? Yeah, I mean, always during my different age groups, I was always sort of known, I think, for my forehand or people talked about it more, more than my other shots. So, yeah. yeah, it was always like that. And it, it's very rare that you get a, a young player or a junior player come into the seniors and the, the game's changed. It's generally just, a, I guess, a progression of their game that gets better. But my forehand's always been my weapon and the shot I look for. Yeah, no, that make, it makes a lot of sense there. And tell me, your your technique, is that something you just developed in-house, your self-taught technique? Yeah, it's not really... As I've got older, I've seen more of it, maybe just because I'm on courts, you know, more videos and the junior events, but I've seen and you look at it against other players and if something just happened naturally, no thought of how I turn the racket or how I use my wrists, something that's maybe tweaked over the years or coaches have reminded me of is the tape back trying to not be too late on it just because the way I hit it and I, I turn my wrists like that if I'm too late then I'm too late to come through with the racket so a lot of the time it's reminded me of early preparation um, and a little bit of the the grip especially in my junior days not making sure it got too too round the racket you know too uh, too extreme so is you know going back to those days where you draw a line on your your grip and make sure that the line is fitting in the okay. in your in the middle of your your fingers there. So as you get older, you take more control of that yourself. You don't coaches are there to help, but you don't rely on them. You you take ownership of your game. And as I've got older, I've got better at that. So that if, when you've got something that works very well, you don't want to change it too much. You just want to try and improve it without messing it up so I've just always had that and not thought too much about it when I've seen the ball I've just hit it hit as hard as you can yeah yeah it is it's a weapon it's a cannon and um, yeah. let's go through some questions this is one this one says has your fitness changed has your fitness training changed yeah. but I got some other questions like this as well they were like what's changed in your training over the past few years from moving from becoming like a top 20 player has anything changed or have you just kept the basics there? No, it's always sort of changed. Um, when I was younger, I've always been a tall guy. So you want to try and fill out your frame a bit. So you're trying to concentrate a little bit, getting you know weight and, and power in your body, a bit of muscle as well. I've always been quite explosive, but getting that stability. I used to do a lot more sort of 400 meter track running uh, when I was younger as well. It just changes as it goes along, not necessarily at, Sometimes you decide to, it just naturally changes. And then sometimes you make, per, you know, purpose changes that you, you want, you identified something. So when did I, I don't know, maybe from like the challenges into the tour events or even maybe like top 50, one of my biggest improvements a couple of years ago was my movement, um, speed around the court uh, and efficiency. is something we um, looked at a lot, worked on it a lot not necessarily lifting heavy weights in the gym than maybe I did previous in my career. More recently, unfortunately, especially last year, a lot of gym stuff was was based around rehab when I hurt my knee. So it was all about strengthening that, 
when I use that on court, what positions I get into, trying to replicate those positions in the gym. And yeah, sometimes you then change your, we change my cardio. So it wasn't putting a lot of load on my knee. So you think of like the Versa climber or the bike, uh, that's a lot less of no load going through the knee than I did with the running, let's say. Um, more recently, I've, I've introduced a lot more running now because I've, I've got more confidence in my knee. And tell me, does the bike and Versa climber give you the same level of fitness as running or is it hard to replicate running? I spoke about this with my coach the other week, actually, and we, we were saying that, you know, there's no substitute for running. Like, running is almost a pure form of fitness. It's like what people have been doing for centuries. And as the years have gone by and the more sports science have got involved, it's very easy to get away from that because you can get re- very technical with what you do. So I think running is the hardest form of training, but for 100% if you have a hard versa session or a hard bike session you know about it and you feel it so there's no getting away from that but in terms of our sport tennis I find it hard to get tennis fitness with that without being on the court as in like playing best of five sets and stuff I can do a lot of bike sessions or running but I don't think it replicates tennis fitness as in what you do on the court, the movement, the picking up, the tempo of playing a rally. You can replicate it in bike sessions, maybe doing like 10 seconds on, 25 seconds off, or 15 seconds. So it's like a point and then you get your break. But I feel actually playing on the court uh, is the best way to just get your fitness. Great. No, that makes a lot of sense. Plus the movement, the left and right movement, that must be, you can't replicate that on a bike or on no, a the load, Yeah, the load, the, the split, picking up the ball reacting straight away it all adds up hi guys quick break just want to say next week i'm really excited to have a former top 10 player the davis cup winner serbian janko tipsarovic on the show it's going to be an amazing show can't wait to speak to him in case you didn't know our 10 percent discount of the tennis pointer is still valid to podcast listeners if you use the code Alex, A-L-E-X, you get 10% off the tennis pointer. In the meantime, hope you're enjoying Kyle's interview. Let's get back to it. And tell me, for all our listeners here and fans who uh, they are at home, they have a bike, they have a tour at home, what's, yeah. a hard bike, what's a hard 30-minute bike session that if I'm to go out and do tomorrow, what do you recommend? Well, like, I mean, you could do something on the verse. So I do a quite simple session where it's basically 30 seconds on and 30 seconds resting. So you're working 30, resting 30. It's easy to work to because of the minute. You do that six times mm-hmm. and then that's like one set. And then I have a break for about two and a half, three minutes. Do it again, break, and then do it again. So three sets of about 18 t- in reps in total. Yeah. You could do something similar like that on the bike. You go hard for 30, rest for 30. Something longer that we do is like kilometer intervals. Okay. So you, you bike, you know, a thousand meters as quick as you can. Then you take the rest. I can't actually think what the rest is right now. But the thing with fit, you can play around with it because yeah. you're working different systems in your body. But Thanks. maybe like a kilometer on, two and a half minutes off or something. Um, it's also the the session is as hard as you make it. True. It, 
if a thousand meters, you're not working to a time, you're working to how quick you do it. So if you go quick and you push yourself, then it's a hard session. But yeah, a good running one we do is a very well known, well known one in the tennis world is like what called 40 twenties, the 40 seconds on, on the running machine, 20 seconds off. And we generally always run to 16 kilometers an hour, 10 miles an hour. And what we do is we play with the incline. So one or two percent, you know, some people go up to four or five percent, which is, is pretty tough or higher. So that's a good one as well. If you could do, I think it's 15 or 16, 40, 20s at 16 kilometers an hour and you're playing around with the incline, that's a, that's a really good workout. That's pretty good. And yeah, so that, that will give some, some, that'll give people something to think about over the next few days. Did you know we have over 170 great episodes with coaches, players, trainers and experts working at the highest level of the game? Tap the subscribe button on your podcast app so you don't miss out on the latest episodes of the podcast. And to listen to our great back catalogue of episodes with the biggest game changers in tennis, go to functionaltennispodcast.com. Let me see here. Let me see what we have. By the way, while I'm going through these questions here, you're, you're sponsored by Rolex, aren't you? Yeah. What's yeah, your yeah. What's your favorite Rolex? My favorite one would actually be this one. It's a GMT Master. Nice. With but the the, the name I call it is the Pepsi, just because of the colors. Yeah, they're impossible but, um, to get. So that's my favorite one. But yeah, Rolex is a is a pretty cool brand. So I'm pretty fortunate. So yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty sweet. And tell me, yeah. cars? You're into cars as well? Yeah, I love cars. I mean. I always follow the Formula One series. Obviously, no, nothing going on, but I've, I've been to four races, a couple in Abu Dhabi, a couple in Silverstone. I went to, I don't know how well you know it, but there's a, something called a World Endurance Championship, which is basically like the end race at the end of that championship is Le Mans. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's the style of cars they race. And my sister happens to work for a race car company now called Janetta, which is in that championship. Okay. Uh, luckily, I could just phone her and say, can I come along and have a watch? So that was pretty cool. And then, yeah, uh, luckily, uh, I've got a sponsorship with Jaguar as well. Nice. What Jag have they kicked you out with? It's uh, F-Type. So Very nice. The source, nice. Yeah. Tell it's me. not short of, of pace, but my mom hates it because there's, no, uh, there's no boot space. So. Ah, it's a great job. It's, it's impractical, but... Do you have the V8 or the V... Is there a V8 and a V6, is there? Yeah, V8. You have the V8. That's a nice one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, tell I'm me, fine. I just saw one of the questions here. You've been watching any Netflix. What's your Netflix go-to? Yeah, so as you can match, I've watched a bit of Netflix recently. I watched yesterday, which is is really bad, actually, but the, <laughs> uh, the second season of that Sunderland Till I Die, Okay. I it, it, funnily enough, it came out in April Fool's, so everyone was taking the mick out of it. But I watched the, I watched the whole series yesterday, six episodes, which was a which is an interesting watch. The other week, I watched the Tiger King. Everyone was raving about that. That was very interesting. And I've just watched. I've just started watching season three of Ozark. Oh, looking forward to that. That would yeah. be really good. Yeah, yeah. I've just been watching. I don't watch too much now. We're watching Succession. Have you seen that? It's not on Netflix. No. On Sky. You should try and check it out. It's unbelievable. What's it called? Succession. Succession. Yeah, about okay. like a rich family in New York and the dad. They want to take the dad off the throne. Really good. I recommend okay. it. Then we just ask you a couple more questions here and we let you get back to your beer. It's a sparkling peach. 
Okay, okay. Well, there's nothing wrong with a beer. Uh, yeah, it's right. It looks looks like a beer, doesn't it? it looks it like does. a really relaxing. It does. Uh, you can't give anybody advantage. You, you can't show anybody using your beer. But what's some advice for juniors? What would you tell? Like, I'm sure you get asked all the time by juniors some advice. But what's your what's your number one bit of advice? But you can't say trust the process because that's what everybody says. It's a hard question to sort of answer because it is such like a long period or process in your career. But I mean, the, the biggest one is for me, like I had my maybe my style of play and I picked elements out of different players or I've had different coaches over the years who have maybe had different ideas. And I guess I've taken what I feel has worked for me the best and always had that in my game. So what I'm trying to say is like, you need to maybe believe in your game as much as you can and understand your game but also be willing to adapt to different situations. It's basically go, going down your journey, your path, and being comfortable with, with what you're doing, not guessing yourself too much, looking at what other players are doing or thinking they do it better than, than I do it. It's really sort of believing in what you have. Uh, and that's what I've done. I mean, of course, you can talk about confidence or belief playing other players, but in terms of my game, I always believe I had a very good game and I played better at other times and I played very well at other times or not so good. Um, but the whole, the whole thing is I still have confidence in my game, what I'm doing. I believe I have an attacking game that I can take control of rallies and matches. Sometimes it doesn't happen. I have to learn from it, but I always feel like I have weapons in my game that can hurt. And, um, that's like the biggest thing for me is I've always sort of believed in my game that it's going to a place that will help me win matches and stuff. So I think if you're not comfortable with your game or you don't understand a clear way of playing, I think that's when it gets messy. And it sort of goes into that, what you say, trust the process. It's like your game is going in a direction that hopefully will take to the top of the world rankings one day and win tournaments, win matches. But yeah, that's the biggest thing is you naturally have so many opinions or advice coming through you uh, thrown at you across the years some you want that advice because you they're your coaches you want them in your corner but you've actually had lots of opinions from other people you just don't want that or uh, guys that analyze matches or journalists or something and they just throw ideas at you but as long as you have like a clear way clear path of what you want to do i think that's re- very big yeah. in the game it gives you a lot of confidence with yourself every time you walk onto the court that's some good advice there. And tell me, when did you, as a junior, did you always want to go pro? Was it always your dream from a young lad to go pro? Um, well, when I was young, let's say eight, nine, ten, I was always very sporty in different in different sports in school. Uh, tennis was something I did out of school, and then it was at eleven or twelve I stopped doing tennis before school at half six till eight, and then going to school. And it was at 13, I decided to leave school, leave home or move away from home and go to Bisham Abbey and work out a tennis academy. To make that decision was like a decision that I basically said, yeah, I'm, I'm giving this a proper go now. Um, but I thought, I always looked at the professionals and thought, you know, that's amazing. That is where you want to be. But I never sort of said, I'm going to be professional. It was just like, when you're that young, there's always like, okay, we first got to win domestically 
And my coach at the time, John Black, said, yeah, we've got to win domestically before we can even think about anything else. So I did that, won some indoor series, uh, won the British Nationals event. Then we start to go international, under-14s, tennis Europe. That goes into under-16s slash ITF juniors. What I'm saying is there's always a level that you can keep aiming for. And that's what I really focused on was, okay, I'm in a new level now, ITFs. Then it moved, obviously, into Futures. Futures, a lot of people that I kept hearing was, you don't want to be hanging around Futures longer than uh, 18 to 24 months. So that was the big push to get out of that quickly into the challenges. And I think only once I got out of the Futures sort of level and maybe started doing really well in, in challenges, then I started to have a real belief that I can go top in this game now on the top, like the 250s, okay. 500s, get to the top of the rankings. So the dream as a kid was always like, yeah, it'd be cool to play this event, especially like Wimbledon. That was the big one. But uh, in reality, there was so many like little stages that you had to get through first to realistically looking at being on the tour. And how quick did you get through the futures? Yeah, it was, uh, it was about that. Uh, oh, if I'm being honest, like, uh, I could say, I don't know, 18 months. I didn't really have a, an answer, but I ha always had like a little taste of it. Like I'd win a, maybe a round. I'd qualify first when back then it was three or four matches qualify for futures. So you had to win five matches to get one point, which is Wrong. absolutely crazy thinking about it. But once I got that, I started winning a couple of matches, main draw quarters. And then I went on a bit of a run where then I made final. I won my first futures. I think the next week or the week after I made final again. And I started to really rack it up and gain some momentum. And unfortunately, it's hard now to get through because of the... Um, what they call the transition tour. Yeah, which is gone. I think they're getting rid of it now again. It's yeah. Gone, but and it's, it, gone. it's harder now. But back then, you could see your path. The bet you did, you get in the challenger qualities and, and so on. And tell me, last question for you. What's the difference between, let's say, a seasoned futures player, seasoned challenger player, and the top-level player? Is there certain characteristics that you need to get out of each block? So let's say, say a difference say, between a top player. Let's say the difference between a challenger player and a future player. Oh, okay. The big thing I noticed from juniors to futures when I played was the physicality and the movement. A lot of guys were, I just felt, were quicker and stronger than the futures. There was a lot more like errors and stuff. So to go from futures and challenges, it's tough to say, like, maybe the guys are just a bit better. Like, okay. it's maybe not much between them because you know there's rankings but you see some matches guys that are ranked outside 100 give guys top 15 tough matches mm. but i think from futures to challenges there's nothing much different there you, you still get guys in chat now playing futures because you, they have to drop down to get the points maybe get some easier points but it's maybe they just do things a bit better on the court it, futures is still tough these days but i remember speaking to my coach and at Futures, wherever you play, I, I just found it was, it was always a dogfight to get anything done, like to get practice courts, to get balls. Like you just had to hustle a lot. And there was a lot of like, I don't know, just drama. Like, And I said, when I got to the challenges, I went to a tournament in Slovakia. I said to my coach, like, everyone just gets on with it here. Like mm. no one's reached 
I don't know what you would call it, the top of the game like Hollywood, like where they're staying in great hotels, they're earning good money. Everyone's hustling here in the challenges that they've got to fight for their points. But I just found there was no, there's no rubbish, there's no BS. Like you went on the court, the, the practice court, they, they went on there to train properly. When they had to go and play, they played hard. And I found that a big difference. Like people in the challenges got it a bit more. Okay. And you know, in challenges, if you don't win matches, you don't get any money. You, you're not even breaking even. So it was a real like tougher mentality when I, I moved to the challenges than the futures I found. And then the top guys. So when you've broken to top 20, what's, mm. what's different in your game from a top 150 player and top 20? Definitely the, the skill level goes up in terms of, you could say maybe talent and stuff. A lot more guys have something about them. Uh, bigger weapons as well i found you can make you can be a pretty good tennis player if you fight hard and you make yourself tough to beat mm -hmm. i.e from like 50 to 100 maybe lower than 50 but once you get to the top even top 30 these guys have big weapons everyone has something about them there's not many guys that don't have anything about them the guys have a shot that is a dangerous weapon or it might be a serve, or these guys move unbelievably well, it's going to be tough to beat. It's something like that. So when you get to the top of the game, you've probably heard it before, there isn't much in it, but if you can do those little things better, that yeah. make a massive difference. So, And I found as well, the more that comes into it is the mental side of the, of the game. There's a lot of, maybe you don't see it a lot, but there's a lot of, uh, as you get top, I found myself speaking a lot more, about the mental side rather than shots like forehand and backhand or this guy's got a better forehand or something mm. but there's a lot more sort of psychological sometimes you play uh, using the psychological effect like oh, I know this guy when it comes to this point the match all he's going to do is start he's going to start slicing because he doesn't want to hit over a shot or something like that or you say you know in this situation I'm just going to come in on this side and I'm going to force him to make a pass on his weaker side of his of his shot of his of his game, uh, it's like playing lot mental games like that. Um, that I find when you you get to the top, uh, it it does make a difference because there's not there's not a lot within these players. You know, everyone can play, but any little advantage you can get, um, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of psychological stuff that happens in tennis that I don't think you you see on the court on the TV. Sorry. I'd say you're deep and tired on court 24-7. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, great. Well, look, Kyle, I won't take any more of your time. I really appreciate oh, no it. No worries. And enjoy your last day or two and safe trip back to the UK. And we'll see you back on the tour soon. Yeah, well, I hope well, so. Who knows some, right now? But yeah, some stage, yeah. some stage. Well, look. Exactly. Uh, yeah, take, thank you very much. Appreciate it. No worries. Thanks bye, for having bye. me. Bye-bye. Cheers, bye. cheers. Hope you enjoyed that, guys. I definitely did and thought Kyle gave some really detailed answers, which was amazing. We've other live episodes lined up, so keep an eye on our Instagram account, Functional Tennis, but we will be converting them to podcast episodes so you won't miss out. As usual, if you're new to the podcast, please hit subscribe button and please forward this podcast on to as many people as possible. would really appreciate that. And also, if you've a bit of extra time, I'd really appreciate if you could head over to your podcast app, especially if you're listening on iTunes and leave us a review. 
leave us a comment. Would really appreciate that. It means a lot to us. We don't actually have that many comments and reviews in there. So everyone we get makes a big difference. And yeah, thank you. Other than that, stay safe and I'll be back next week. Bye.